This morning we uh, continue our sermon series through First and Second Samuel called Looking for a King. And so I want to invite you, if you wouldn't mind, to take your copy of God's Word, however you have that with you this morning, whether it's in book form or iPhone, tablet, however you have it. And if you would turn there or click there uh, to First Samuel chapter 16, that's where we're going to be this morning. First um, Samuel is an Old Testament book, so in the front of your Bible, there's a table of contents. If you're having trouble locating it, um, start in Genesis, just run down through there. You'll eventually find First Samuel. Look at that page number, turn to that page number, and then find chapter 16. There's nothing wrong with using that table of contents. That's what it's there for, all right? This morning, we're going to see what it is that God looks for in an individual, And we're going to see that it's often different than what we look for in an individual. Also this morning, we're going to see God reject one king and choose another king. What you have seen and what you're going to continue to see is that in 1 Samuel, there are three main players. There's Samuel. He's kind of a transitional figure. He's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Then there's a guy by the name of Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. He's what you've seen. He's the people's king. And then the guy we're going to be introduced to this morning and probably look at most of his life the next few chapters here is a guy by the name of David. David is the great king of Israel. He's God's king. Now this whole idea of The people having a king wasn't God's idea. God didn't want them to have a king. And do you remember why in our study? Because for 400 years, they did have a king. And not just a king, they had the king. They had God as their king. Up to this point, God had been leading the people. Now, he would raise up people known as judges to kind of govern the affairs of the nation, but pretty much God was their king. But that wasn't good enough for the people. They wanted a king like all the other nations around them. They wanted an earthly leader. They wanted a king that they could see, a king that they could touch, a king that would lead them into battle, a king that would take care of them, and a king that they could be proud of. They wanted a king because every other nation had a king and they wanted to be like every other nation. Exactly what they were not supposed to do. So the people tell Samuel that they don't want God as their king anymore, but they want a king that they can see and take pride in. And Samuel warns them, that's not a good idea. The people refuse to listen to his warning. And so after their continual begging for a king, God finally gives the people what they want. He gives them a king. A guy by the name of Saul wins what I call the People's Choice Award, and he becomes their king. And he really was the king they wanted. He was taller than anyone else. He was stronger than anyone else. He was more handsome than anyone else. Saul looked like a king. You see, the people weren't interested in things like character and commitment. They were interested in things like charisma and charm. To put it simply, they wanted somebody who looked good. 
someone who could represent them well in the public eye, someone with a good outer image. They were looking for appearance only. They were looking at what they could see on the outside. If they were making their decision in our day, it would be someone who looked good in front of the camera. That's who they chose. Saul proved to be an unfit an unfaithful king. We saw this the last few weeks here. A guy who disobeyed God and continually led for his own name and for his own glory and in his own strength and in his own power. And during his time, Saul grew colder and more foolish in his leadership and he really made two mistakes. He not only did something that God told him not to do, he did it because he wasn't willing to wait on God to do it. And he also didn't fully obey God. And because, and if you like to take notes, now's the time to take them on your message outline there. And because Saul had rejected the word of God, now the God of the word had rejected Saul. And as we arrive on the doorstep of chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, the whole nation, including Samuel, had pinned their hopes on this guy named Saul. But time and time and time again, Saul proved his inability to lead. Sure, he could rally the people. Sure, he could win battles. But ultimately, Saul failed to lead God's people because Saul failed to be led by God. So God rejected him as king. And in light of Saul's rejection as king, I've set all of that up for you to lead us right here into, listen to how chapter 16 begins. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. In other words, the time for grieving is over. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to move. And God's saying, you know, quit grieving for what was. Now be encouraged for what will be. You're going to anoint somebody. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, and does this sound like us sometimes? God gives a command. God tells you something to do. And you say, how can I? How can I go? God tells you to go. You say, right. And before you can get off your knees, you say, Wait. How can this happen? Samuel says, Saul, hear about it. He'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So here's what's going on. Samuel's mourning because of the sin of Saul. We read that in verse 1. So God sends Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem. Pastor Josh, there's your Christmas thing right there, brother. Same one we sing about at Christmas, that little town of Bethlehem, to the home of a man named Jesse, to anoint one of Jesse's sons as Israel's next king. And when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, he doesn't know how God's choice will be revealed. God hasn't revealed that to him. God simply says, Samuel, you just go to Jesse's home, and the rest will be made clear to you. You just go and wait. So when Samuel gets there, one by one, this is how I envision it, one by one, the sons begin to pass before him. And I kind of picture it kind of like an Old Testament version of Cinderella, 
where the ladies line up to see whose foot fits the slipper. Only here it's not a slipper that Samuel's trying to place on someone. It's a crown. And first is a guy by the name of Eliab. Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel, and I've got a word underlined for you there in verse 6, the word saw. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Eliab looked kingly, tall, handsome, muscular, a commanding presence. He's got those rugged good looks about him. 6'2", 225 pounds. I picture him as the running back of the Bethlehem High School football team. Probably even made the all-Judean all-star team because he was so good. He'd been the star athlete that everyone would have been talking about in Bethlehem even after his playing days are over. Hey, you remember Eliab back when he was in high school? Certainly, though, he was a man of battle because we'll learn later that he's the one who's fighting with Saul and the troops against Goliath in the very next chapter. So Samuel takes one look at Eliab and thinks he's found the one. Boy, this guy sure reminds me of Saul. Good-looking, tall, strong. He's got to be the one. He's got to be God's choice to be the next king. Now Saul doesn't, or Samuel doesn't say this. The Bible says in verse 6 that he's just thinking this. And why is he thinking this? Because he looked like the type that you'd normally choose for a king. I mean, we would pick Eliab. On the outside, they're the ones. Remember in grade school when you'd have two teams and You'd pick teams for kickball or whatever. You'd always begin by picking who? The best, the tallest, the strongest, the one who looked like they kicked the ball the furthest. We would pick Eliab. You know, I can't help but think that we use the world's economy when we look externally at who to follow or who to choose. But also when we look internally at who we want to be. We want to be like Eliab. So much of life is spent trying to be around Eliab or accepted by Eliab or even being like Eliab. And now Samuel, when you think about it, church, he should have known better. He should have known better than have this running through his head. Like, Samuel, don't you remember Saul? Don't you remember? Are you really going to make that mistake again? You're going to choose this guy, Eliab, because he looks kingly? With all that's going on with Saul, Samuel should have known this better than anyone. Yet his eyes immediately look at the external. And Samuel thinks, this is the one. But God sees what Samuel can't see. And God says, nope, he's not the one. Look in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Talking about Eliab. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Samuel could see the outside of Eliab, but Samuel could not see the inside of Eliab. Samuel could not see his character. What do I mean by that? If you trace the story of Eliab, you'll see that he turns out to be a guy who becomes very critical, very negative, very arrogant, and very untrusting of God. Samuel focused on the external, like most of us do. He was basing it off what he could see with his physical eyes. God says, nope, not him. Second son comes up in verse 8. We won't read it, but his name is Abinadab. Probably got rejected for his name, Abinadab. Doesn't roll off the tongue very well, does it? King Abinadab. God says, nope. Not him. Third son comes up, guy by the name of Shammah. Samuel thinks maybe this guy is the one, but God says, nope. The Bible doesn't even mention the other sons. The first three are mentioned. The next four aren't. All we simply read in verse 10 is this. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. By the way, let me ask you this. What was wrong with the seven sons of Jesse? Nothing really. I mean, the text really doesn't say anything negative about them at all. They were fine men who could probably qualify for any job except this one. God had already filled this position and not with one of those seven sons. You see, as the sons stood there before Samuel that day, they all looked the part. But Samuel couldn't see what God could see. Samuel could only see the appearance and the height, the external. God could see their heart. Now by this time, you can't help but think that maybe Samuel's a little bit puzzled. I mean, because one by one, the seven sons of Jesse come in, and one by one, they're shot down. Not the one, not the one, not the one, not the one. Samuel knows he's been assigned by a job by God to go and select the next king. But every time one of those sons would come in front of him, God would say, no, that's not the one. And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, and I don't know, I read some things into the text. I try to envision it, picture it, walk along with it. Samuel seems to me like kind of an ornery guy. Look in verse 11. Are these all the sons you have? I mean, think about that question. Samuel knows that one of Jesse's sons is to be anointed, but Jesse appears to have run out of sons. So Samuel asked maybe if there's a spare son tucked away in a closet. Maybe in the basement somewhere that maybe he forgot about. It's kind of a a, a weird question. Jesse, did, did you perchance forget about any of your kids? Are these all the sons that you have? Look at Jesse's answer. They're still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. Jesse, you got any other kids that you forgot about? Jesse's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) There is another one. I almost forgot about him. But he's just a kid. And he's out tending the sheep. 
In other words, he really doesn't count for much. Not the kind of guy you'd really want. I mean, David's own father, by the way this is written, David's own father didn't really have much stock in him. I mean, David's so insignificant within Jesse's family that he's not even summoned to come up with the other seven sons. At this time, David's just a young boy. Now, we don't know he's David yet. His name hasn't been said yet, but we know the story that he is. And he's just kind of out doing the ordinary, run-of-the-mill kind of thing that young kids do. He's out tending the sheep. That's the job he's been given. And, and by the way, the word youngest there in Hebrew, most Hebrew scholars translate that to mean runt. And so he's the runt of the family. And he's out doing a job that really slaves are meant to do. So even his own father didn't really see any potential in this young guy named David. He hadn't even bothered to invite him to come inside. I mean, David probably even had to wear a, a name tag at the family meals so people wouldn't forget who he was. There's little David right there. In fact, when he's mentioned, the father doesn't even call him by his name. He just refers to him as the youngest or the runt. So while all the brothers are with Samuel, David's out with the sheep. He doesn't know anything that, that's going on. His father didn't even think enough to, to call him in from the field. And finally, in verse 11, Samuel says, uh, maybe he waited around for a little bit. Okay, if you got, go get him. Send for him. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. We're not going to do anything else until he gets here. And again, I have fun with the Bible sometimes. That makes it come alive to me. I try to read. Maybe Jesse's like, okay, I don't think he's really what you're looking for, but I'll bring him in. Verse 12. So he went and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Samuel sends for David, has him brought in. So in comes David. Where's he been? Tending sheep. So in comes David. You got to get the picture. Straight from the pasture. He didn't even have time to wash up, change his clothes. Do you know what you probably smell like after working with sheep all day? And look like? He's dirty. Disheveled. Smelled like the pasture. The point is, he doesn't look like a king. Like all the other sons. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a man of war. He looks like a little runt kid with a little baby face. That's how he's described. He's Justin Bieber. Sorry. He's a Jonas brother. How's that? I don't want to leave them out either. But there he stands. We know the rest of the story. There he stands, looking as he is, the future king of Israel. He doesn't look like a king, but that doesn't matter because God has found his man. 
And then God says to Samuel in verse 12, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. We finally learn the name of Jesse's youngest son. This is David. This is the first time the name David appears in the Bible. Right here. Do you know the last time that the name David appears in the Bible? Revelation chapter 22. The very last chapter. So from 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 13 all the way forward, the name of David appears around 1,000 times in the Bible. So why was so much written about this guy? I mean, yes, he was a king, but he wasn't the only king that Israel had. He wasn't even the only great king that Israel had. He certainly wasn't the only shepherd that we read about in the Bible. Yes, he was a warrior, but he wasn't the only warrior. Sure, he wrote a lot of songs, but he didn't write all of the songs. So why David? Why all this emphasis on this guy named David? I believe it's because of something that's said about David that's not said about anyone else in the Bible or in all of history. And it's not said just once. It's said twice. There's a verse about David that I think is the key to the meaning of his life. If you back up a few chapters in 1 Samuel chapter 13, there's a statement that's made about David that's made about no other person in the Bible. Samuel has come to speak to Saul to tell Saul why he's no longer going to be king. And we read these words in verse 13. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart and appointed, and appointed him leader of His people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And some 1,000 years after David's death, that same phrase is repeated in another New Testament book in the book of Acts chapter 13 verse 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now church, that wasn't David's testimony about himself. This wasn't the testimony of other people about David. This was the testimony of God himself about David. David is described not once but twice as a man after God's own heart. But what does that mean? Does that mean that David was some sort of super person, some sort of superhero? No, that's not what it means. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about David or about why God chose and used David. Or about why God chooses or uses anyone for that matter. God doesn't choose people that we find impressive. You see, our world naturally tends to look on the outside. That's what we do. 
We look for people to admire. When we look for people to admire, when we choose our role models, when we choose our heroes, we're often swayed or impressed by the things that are superficial. We want the beautiful people. We want the brilliant people. We want the best and the brightest. But God says, that's not the way I make my choices. God says, I choose the nobodies and I turn them into somebodies. So that leads me to ask this question. What was it about David that made him a man after God's own heart? Again, this is the only person in the entire Bible that gets that title. A man after God's own heart. So what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Before we explore real quick David's heart, we need to understand what is meant here by the word heart. The word heart here, when the Bible speaks of our heart, it's not talking about that organ in your body that pumps blood. It's referring to the very center of your life, to the core of your being, your mind, your emotions, your will. It's speaking of the spiritual center of your life, who you are, the inner you, the real you. And everything else flows from it. It's from the heart that we do good. It's from the heart that we do bad. It's from the heart that our sinful actions come. It's the most important thing about you is your heart. So for God to look on someone's heart meant that their character and their motivations were being investigated. This means that God's primary concern is not your exterior, but your interior. Your inner person. So I want to very quickly, this is not an exhaustive list that you will find, but I want to very quickly give you what I think are three qualities of a person after God's own heart. Number one, a person after God's own heart is faithfully walking with God. When you have a heart for God, you're after God's heart. And I don't think any psalm describes David's heart for God any better than Psalm 42, and you know it well. Verse 1 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. This will be the burning desire of every single person who wants to be after God's heart. There will be a hunger for God and for His presence in your life. To be a person after God's own heart means that you love God more than anything and everything else. Saul disobeyed God because he liked people more than he loved God. David was a man after God's own heart because he wasn't a man who tried to win the hearts of men. David's heart wanted to please the heart of God. And people followed David because David followed God. When you have a heart for God, you will have a walk with God. And there are two things that are true and have to be true if you're going to walk with God. And these two things were true of David. Number one, you will love God's Word. David loved God's Word. Out of the 150 Psalms that were written, half of them are attributed to David, and many of them talk about his love for God's Word. You'll see it later in the story, but David loved God's Word even when he was condemned by it. David loved God's Word even when he was confronted by it. 
And the reason why it's so important that you love God's Word is because when you do, it will always keep God where He belongs and it will keep you where you belong. You see, when David was a shepherd, he always knew who the shepherd was. When David became king, he always knew who the real king was. He never let the crown that he wore or the kingdom that he ruled or the enemies that he conquered go to his head. He knew that he was nothing without God and David knew that he could do nothing without God. But not only will you love God's Word, you will live God's Word. To be a man or a woman after God's heart means that you not only read the Word of God, but you obey the Word of God. Earlier I quoted from Acts chapter 13, but I didn't read all of that verse. I saved it for this portion, and here's why. Here's what the rest of it says. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him. To do. Here you see the relationship between the phrases, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. What made David a cut above everyone else was that his heart always pointed toward God. He had one major desire, and that was to follow God's will and do everything that God wanted him to do. And that's exactly what David himself said in Psalm 40, verse 8, when he said, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law or your word is within my heart. If you love God, you will love God's word. If you love God's word, you will live God's Word. And when you live God's Word, God's Word will be in your heart. And when God's Word is in your heart, God's love will capture your heart. And when God's love captures your heart, you will want to live out God's Word that's in your heart. To be a person after God's own heart means that you reflect the heart of God. So what would it look like for me and you to have our lives described that way when it comes to God's heart. It means when you have a heart for God and you're after God's heart, you desire what God desires. You love what God loves. You delight in what God delights in. You're burdened by what burdens God. You want for your life what God wants for your life. What's important to God is important to you. It means when you're, that your life is in harmony with God. When God says go, you go. When God says stop, you stop. When God says speak, you speak. When God says change, you change. When God says do this, you do it. When God says stop that, you stop it. Church, let me share with you something about this book that we call the Bible, and please don't ever, ever forget it. You can even fill in a blank if you want to on your message outline. The Bible isn't just to be read or explained or memorized or even believed. The Bible is to be obeyed. And so let me ask you, how's your heart? Are you someone who loves God and obeys God? Do you have a heart that runs after God and your life and His will for your life? Second, not only are you faithfully walking with God, but you're fully committed to God. 
God is looking for men and women whose hearts are completely His. Second Chronicles 16 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. So what's God looking for? He's looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That means there are no locked closets. That means that nothing's been swept under the rug. That means when you do wrong and you sin, you admit it, you confess it, and you repent of it immediately. That means you're hurt and grieved over sin and you're concerned about those things in your life that displease God. That means you long to please God in your thoughts, in your words, and in your actions. That even means that you care about the motivations behind your actions. That's a heart fully committed to God. And then number three, not only faithfully walking with God and fully committed to God, but honestly living for God. There's some of you maybe who are in this room who are watching online and maybe you feel like you're not qualified to be used by God because you don't have any kind of great talents. Let me say to you that God isn't looking for talented people. Some of you don't feel qualified to be used by God because you feel like you don't have what it takes. Let me say to you that God isn't looking for gifted people. God is looking for spiritual people who are completely given over to Him and who are honest to the core people who have integrity. Listen to me on your message outline. God's not impressed with how you look on the outside. God's impressed with who you are on the inside. Take the necessary time to develop and cultivate the inner qualities that God seeks and then let Him use you. It is so true. It's nothing new. You've heard it before. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And so how's your heart? Are you guarding your heart? The Bible teaches in Proverbs 4, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. In other words, the steering wheel of your life is your heart. And God cares for the course of your life. So guarding your heart must be top priority. We need to continually guard our heart. We need to continually allow Jesus to bring us the needed change of attitude, intent, ambition, or aspiration. We need to continually allow Jesus to transform us from the inside out. So what's the state of your heart today? Let me ask you some questions as we close. Questions that only you can answer about yourself. How much time do you spend on your outward appearance as opposed to your inward heart? How much time do you spend thinking about the externals compared to the amount of time that you spend thinking about your heart? Some of us spend so much time thinking about what we look like on the outside, but little to nothing about what our heart looks like on the inside. How you look, the shape of your body, none of that stuff God looks at. God looks where? The heart. Now let me ask you this. What would your exterior look like if you spent as much time on your exterior as you do in your spirit. 
If you treated your body like you do your heart, chances are you might be smelly, all hair in a mess, and looking really bad. So here's the question you need to be asking yourself. Whose opinion are you more worried about? If you spend more time on your exterior than you do your heart, it must be that you value the opinion of others more than you value the opinion of God's. But here's the real question. Does God see in you a heart that He can use? What does He see in your heart? Because to God, your character is a million times more important than your appearance. Who you are on the inside is so much more vital than what you look like and what you do on the outside. God isn't looking for a perfect heart, but He is looking for a pure heart. Some years after the death of David, God would make this statement. Here's what he says in 1 Kings 14, 8. If I could summarize this message and those three points I just gave you, here they are. But you have not been like my servant David. What about David? Who obeyed my commands and followed me with all his heart and always did whatever I wanted him to do. We know that David's obedience wasn't perfect. We know, and you're going to see later on, that he sinned greatly. Yet he's commended by God here. Why? What's the reason? Because he obeyed his commands, followed me with all my, his heart, and always did whatever I wanted him to do. God's approval of David wasn't based on his flawless perfection. God's approval of David was based on the condition of his heart. More than anything else in the world, David wanted to do what was right in God's sight. He didn't always do it. He was weak like you and I are. But it wasn't because he didn't want to. And what God is looking for are people who will surrender their hearts to him. People who deep down inside more than anything else in the world want to please Him. Would you stand with me as we pray and we go into a time of reflection? Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. God, we thank You for who You are. Majestic, holy and God then we look at ourselves and see that we don't like what we see and this morning maybe you've revealed that to someone here in this room someone whose heart is not after you and I pray that this morning they would take your word and not only take it in but apply it to their life 
and live it out. So God, this morning, we pray that you would just minister and work in our hearts. Perform spiritual surgery where it's needed. And may you get the glory above all. In Jesus' name.